But I think what it really means for teachers uh, and for schools right now, uh, beyond the data collection piece, is just recognizing how vulnerable this population is uh, and that we need to leverage the entire community not just the teachers, it's not just the teacher's responsibility, let's say, to adapt curriculum or modify as needed. It is the responsibility of the entire school. Uh, again, not just to live the school, but the entire community at large. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What current limitations do we face in our educational system when it comes to data collection about students with limited or interrupted formal education, also known as SLIFE students? How can project-based learning and group work help support SLIFE students and their classmates so they can better learn from one another? What are a few steps educators can take right now to be more equitable and mindful of SLIFE students in instruction and assessments? We discuss these questions and much more with Orly Klappholtz. Orly's experience includes special education and second language acquisition with specialized training in Orton-Gillingham curricula. She has extensive experience teaching multilingual students, particularly those with limited or interrupted formal education, and has presented her research at numerous conferences and trainings. In 2021, she co-founded Inlier Learning with Merari Martinez-Cobian, taking a tech-forward approach to creating integrated solutions for the multilingual population. As is the case with most of our guests, we learned about Orly's work through a member of our ELL community. If you have an idea for a topic or guest for a future Highest Aspirations episode, please feel free to reach out to me at stephens at elevationeducation.com. That's Stephen with a V, and Elevation has two L's. As always, thanks for listening. Here's our conversation with Orly Klappoltz. Orly Klappoltz, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. It's good to have you. And a shout out to my friend, John Seidlitz, who recommended you. He's always yeah. uh, great for recommending awesome guests he's been on before. And so uh, shout out to John. Love the work that he's doing and the people that he's collaborating with. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I want to start by talking about um, something that you consider a great challenge, um, and that is educating SLIFE students. And you're not the only one. Um, and one of the the biggest challenges that you've talked about is simply identifying them. We've seen that before at, at elevations, a problem that we're constantly trying to solve, but it's both with, by definition, identifying them, giving them a name, right? Um, and then understanding sort of what the definition of that name is, and then the data uh, that, that goes with it. So my question is to start off, what makes it so difficult to collect and leverage the data that we need to better support these students? And why is it so important to have that standard definition that everyone can use? Sure. I think um, the first challenge that we really have when it comes to identifying these kids and collecting that data is the fact that we don't have that standard federal definition. So when you compare it to, let's say, another group of students, for example, within, let's say, special education, right? So we know we can always point to IDEA legislation to say, this is the definition. This is kind of our guiding light to identify these students and understand then how to support them. And we don't have that yet, First Life. Uh, And while they are mentioned in the Newcomer Toolkit, which is provided by the United States Department of Education, it doesn't define who they are, who who SLIFE are, and it also doesn't then give you an outline of how to support them or collect Mm -hmm. data on them. Uh, So it's really not enough. And then we have these five states right now currently who are 
either collecting data on them or defining them in their own way. Um, and so while that's great, the challenge with that is that if with every state choosing uh, or crafting their own definition of life, we then don't have a way to compare how we're doing in terms of supporting them. Um, and so while it's great that there are states doing it and beginning to collect accurate data, if we can't see on a whole how we're doing in order to support them, then it's going to be challenging to support them. And so, for example, if in, let's say, New York, they tell you that their definition of life, the child has to be between the ages of eight and, let's say, 16, but then in maybe Oregon, they don't have an age limit, well, then we're talking about apples and oranges, right? I can't look at the data and say, well, look at what they're doing. I can definitely apply that to what we're doing in a different state because we're not even talking about the same parameters of students of the data set. Um, and so we really need to be able to look at those trends across the country, uh, but we're not going to be able to do that without a more standard approach to who these kids are. Right. Yeah, I could see that as a, as a huge issue. And, and I want to go to that five states piece. I had that question later, but I think I'll get to it now. But, but I'm back up a second because what I didn't say, I'm kind of taking our audience for granted. And I think most people know <laughs> that SLIFE is students with limited or interrupted formal education. So for anybody yeah. that's listening, that's new to working with multilingual learners, that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. But back to the five states and the kind of standardization, you, know, you, you mentioned that there are five states that have mandatory collection um, of, of SLIFE data. Um, and you talked about how that can, you know, cause some problems, but, but for the other 45 states that really have, it seems like nothing to really go by um, standard wise, how does that affect their abilities to provide appropriate supports to these students? And are you seeing like big differences between what you've observed in the five states that have these policies and the ones that don't? Sure. So I think what's interesting here is that it really goes back to what are we even doing with the data? right? We are, in 2021, we are a data saturated, we are within a data saturated environment, right? Everything is about the data. Uh, and are you collecting the data? And then what are you doing with it? Um, and we see, right, that data is only valuable based on what you're using it for. So if I'm just collecting data for the fun of it, how valuable is it, is it really, um, especially when we're talking about kids and supporting them. And so the collection of it isn't really enough um, it needs to then impact policy and then support trickle down, right, to support the kids as well as the schools that have those kids uh, within their classrooms. And so we're really not seeing that yet, even within the five states. Um, uh, there's a little bit actually in Minnesota, which is one of those states. Uh, and some of it depends on whether it's in their statutes, whether the definition, um, as well as uh, the support or the data collection um, uh, mandate is uh, on their website, state website. Uh, it, it, uh, it very much varies state to state, but we're not seeing it trickle down enough, I'll say, uh, that we can see, for example, point to one whole state and say, wow, like they have it in their legislation. They have come up with a definition and a way to collect data. And this is how it's trickling down so that teachers and schools can really look at it and say, oh, we need to be doing this in order to support them. Um, and so even let's say, you know, looking at those 45 states versus let's say the, the five states that have, uh, we're just frankly not seeing that trickle down yet. And so it really goes back to, of course we want the policies there, but how, how useful 
are those policies? And uh, are they there to support us or are they there to just check a box and say, look, we've got the policy in place? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I was thinking about the compliance piece, right? Like there's there's compliance and there's actually doing something with it. And we see that all the time. I mean, monitoring is a great example, right? Monitoring is something that can be really, really useful for both current and former um, English learners or whatever you're using to, to, to define those students. But if it's just a box to check off that a teacher needs to do, and then it's, you know, put in the folder or whatever, collected digitally um, without really thinking about it, it doesn't do a whole lot. So that's really interesting because the, the five, those five states, it sounds like they've done at least something to identify those students, which is a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for uh, particularly schools that have a new influx of multilingual learners, for whatever the case may be, just to identify those students and say, these are here, here are these students. And for a teacher to look on their roster and understand where they are and what their level is, huge challenge for many places. So that's one thing that's crossed off, which is good. So I wonder if I mean, if there was one state, I think that obviously that and I'd love to hear your reaction to this, that was like a model for this, and like did a really good job that we could then or that federally we could imitate. That would be good. But we're not there, it sounds like yet. So it seems like we have to kind of backwards plan. Right. And think about how it's going to work in an umbrella kind of way. Yeah. And I will. I, that's a really good point. And I'll also add that what we're seeing happen is let's say like the, the states that don't have definitions, they're looking at the other states that do. But again, because they have different definitions with all the different states, it they, the different states then have to make those decisions. Well, do we go this way or do we go that way? Um, and then even within those five states that currently have the definitions and the states who are collecting the data, um, are they then when they are reporting the data on the multilingual learners in their state, are they disaggregating the data? So it's oftentimes that data is not easy to find. Um, you kind of have to dig within Google, but once you find it, if I can find, let's say the demographics of uh, multilingual learners in New York, if I can't then break down who these slave kids are and the state says they're collecting the data, well, then I'm kind of left with this big question mark of what do I do with that? Um, and so I think that we're seeing, for example, Oregon and Minnesota are probably our uh, most um, ideal in terms of, you know, holding up states. But I wouldn't say we're at the point where we can really look to each of them and say, yeah, we need to be doing this across the board in every single state at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's important, like as a kind of an entry point, just to talk about where we are um, sort of in general. And I do want to zoom in in a bit, but but I also want to talk about one other statistic that you gave me that I actually hadn't heard that was pretty staggering. Um, so you you point to research that suggests that as many as 70 to 90 percent of life students won't graduate high school um, and that adolescence life students are most at risk for academic failure. These are staggering statistics. Um so tell us more about the source and, and what it means for educators working with these students. Sure. Uh, before I talk about the two sources that those statistics come from, I th it's really important to recognize that because our research on SLIFE, it is a smaller field. Um, and again, going back to the challenge of not having states, especially when a lot of this research was being conducted that had definition and data collection, that even within the research, those researchers are, are, were, are choosing either their own definition, or if they're in a state that had it at that point, they were using that maybe. And so again, we're really talking about a snapshot uh, of students, right? So it's even within those statistics, it's important to recognize that, okay, we're not talking about like the whole country's worth of SLIFE right now. Um, but again, even so, we, we do, we look at that statistic and it's, 
it is staggering. Um, and it, it goes to show that we can't get the the data that we need because there's no, I mean, it goes right back to what you're talking about before. Yeah, precisely. Um, and so all of these things kind of end up being, you know, cyclical because you're like, oh, here's this research with this data, but it's this research with these students based yeah, on right. this one definition. And then how does it relate? Right. Um, but I, the two, the two, uh, uh, areas of researcher to researchers that we're, we really see those statistics from. Um, the first one is uh, from Fry's research uh, from 2003 and 2005. Um, which you'll see quoted all over. That's where the 70% comes from. Uh, and you can, the probably easiest way, like if someone wanted to read it uh, or locate it, find it, um, is that it was quoted in the Pew Hispanic Center report um, that you can Google and find. Um, and the other, which is actually less widely known um, is from David Ross's research uh, from the Nova Southeastern University where he quotes the 90% statistic. Um, and he talks about there being a 90% dropout rate and from his findings, a 0% graduation rate with a regular diploma. So that also mm. is, I mean, you read that and you just take a step back and think, how, how is that possible? Right. Um, and so that was done within a few districts in Florida, Florida being a state that doesn't have a state definition at this point. So he's using whatever definition that he either found from previous research done with SLIFE or from a different state he's pointing to. Um, but I think what it really means for teachers uh, and for schools right now, uh, beyond the data collection piece, is just recognizing how vulnerable this population is uh, and that um, we need to leverage the entire community, not just the teachers. It's not just the teacher's responsibility, let's say, to adapt curriculum or modify as needed. It is the responsibility of the entire school, uh, again, not just to look at the school, but the entire community at large, right, where they live, where they're coming from, um, and to leverage all the members of the community in order to look at how this child is going to be successful in school and then do our best in order to create systems to make sure that happens. Yeah, and we, we've actually talked about that before in the podcast in a few episodes about sort of community engagement, family engagement, and how that plays into it. And I love that you got into that. And I, we're going to get into that also a little bit later, more specifically. But before we do, um, you know, given the lack of, of, of consistency um, and data and everything that we've just talked about, it, it's, it's not surprising that there's a lot of educators who are struggling to find resources to help these students. You were one of them. I think that's kind of what propelled you to, to do the work that you're doing now. Um, so that being said, like it's kind of a large question. And so you can kind of pick and choose where, you know, what you might provide us, but people are probably asking, well, what, what are some effective strategies that they can use to identify, then assess, and then support these life students over the course of the school year? I mean, we are where we are. Hopefully things will change. You're working to do that, but what do we, what are some things that we can do now? Sure. Um, I, 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 I want to kind of start with what you just said in terms of like, we are moving forward. There are people who really want to change. Um, and actually even like you mentioned earlier, it, that's really the connection originally John Seidlitz and I had together um, of talking about, you know, and Carol Salva's work with, with um, SLIFE students and, and how we as a community wanting to support SLIFE and multilingual, multilingual learners can all work together to move forward and recognizing that change often is slow, uh, really lasting change. Um, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes is slow. Um, and so in recognizing that, um, I will say that the first step really is the identification. And so in recognizing that we may not have a ton of tools um, uh, available to us right now, 
something we are working on as a company um, as, as fast as we can, uh, there are resources, there are free res resources that are available online. And so they may not be the most efficient, but they are there. So one example is New York State actually does have a SLIFE intake questionnaire that can be used. It is translated into many, many, many different languages. It's in PDF form. Teachers can go on there. They can either print it or um, actually even, you know, you can put the questions into an Excel spreadsheet, right? And just like keep copying it with, with students um, and, and do intake that way. And I would say that um, for teachers to even use some of those questions, right? You don't have to go through, let's say all, I think it's 20 or however many questions, but even if you use just a few questions to get a better sense of this student's educational background and their educational experiences from wherever they're coming from, including if they've been in the United States, right? Maybe they've been here and they've moved around or they've been here and then they went to another country or came back, who really knows at this point. Um, but to use that as first step, I would say of like, you know, we're in October right now, if I haven't done it yet, then okay, tomorrow I could go to the New York State website, I could get that PDF and I could find some time with my teaching team as a school uh, and de decide who's gonna do it and find out about all these students' educational background. And I would say that's really step one in terms of resources. Um, the state website, Minnesota's state education state website also, um, in addition to us uh, as a screening or questionnaire tool, they also have, it's also free and available. They have um, sort of a, it's, it's a home language assessment um, or native language sort of assessment. Um, so it will, it just has a few questions, kind of like, what's your name? Where are you from? And that, and it's translated into many different languages. And that's also another way for teachers to at least get a pretty quick sense of are these students, um, are they even literate in their, in their mm -hmm. home languages and mm -hmm. their native languages? Um, and it allows for you to really almost red flag the students that need the most intervention. Uh, and so that's another really good way, uh, good resource to be able to use. And then I would say kind of taking a dive into curricular resources um, and support that way. Uh, you know, you really, we really don't have enough at this point, um, but as much as we can provide content uh, that is both age and grade appropriate, Saddleback uh, has a lot of resources like this, but that has uh, literacy levels within that content uh, that is more appropriate and accurate towards of where that student is, uh, where that life student is in their developing literacy um, is really important. Um, but also looking at our curriculum as how, what's accessible here and what's not accessible here and how can I adapt it and how can I progress monitor um, and look at both their language and content development uh, together at the same time. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I, I, it was kind of an unfair question. I gave you a lot of <laughs> lots to think about there, <laughs> yeah. but you provided some really, tan I appreciate it. We'll link to those because I think those are really important. We'll link to them in the blog post that will accompany this um, that'll be on the, the community um, site. We'll link to that as well. So th those are some great tools to kind of get started and identification of the ones you mentioned from New York and Minnesota. And then you know, like you said, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of find the curriculum that you need. But you did mention a couple of people we've already talked about, John Silas, Carol Salva, who's joined who collaborated with us a bunch. She's great. I mean, all her books um, and the work that she puts out is amazing. And just like, you know, you can find tons of stuff on social media as well. I mean, Carol's yes. kind of a prolific tweeter, you know, so she's got lots of information out there. But kind of, you know, to go through it and to vet what works and what doesn't, that's that's the difficult part for sure. And I appreciate you 
um, sort of being honest and humble about the fact that we're just not, we're not quite there yet, but we're working toward it. So you may have mentioned the, I, you know, I, I think the New York tool and the Minnesota tool, would you classify those as kind of screening tools? Um, if so, are those the only ones? Would you mention any other ones? I mean, you know, you got. Yeah. Um, Massachusetts also has on their website, but again, these are PDF forms that need to be right. like, downloaded. You know, um, I would, what we're working on right now, like that, that's what we're working on as a company is to provide that um, as a tech tool, because, um, you know, again, if you as a, let's say you have a student who's life who comes in to your school and you want to provide them with um, the assessment in their native language, uh, but you also don't have an interpreter and you, no one in your building speaks or reads that language. Um, kind of the hoops that we need to go through mm -hmm. in order to provide the best support even to understand that child's educational background uh, just is not both efficient um, or particularly supportive um, in 2021. And so that's really what we are getting at. And then I would say the other piece to that is then again, what's happening with that data, right? So if every school is downloading a PDFs and printing them out and like that data is getting lost somewhere. And yeah. so how you know, it's not being broken down. And so that's really what we are what we're working on is in order to support schools to do that, to be able to gather that information um, and to be able to look at it and, and break it down and then and hold on to it in a way that is much more accessible. Yeah, I like uh, manila folders with bunches of papers in it as much as the next person, but they don't <laughs> they don't go very far when it comes yeah. to getting what we need for this. Um, and it's really hard to I mean, even just like the, the change management that's needed just for an individual teacher to kind of go from that trusty folder that they have to the, something digital, something that I've seen a lot of, obviously, um, and, and then to do it on a, on a large scale, it's really needed. So the work that you're doing, I think is really, really important. And we'll be interested to see um, how it goes moving forward. Thank you. So what advice do you have? This is another <laughs> like unfair question, but like, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you some hard That's questions. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. what, what advice do you have for, for how educators can deliver fair assessments for these students and, and use the results to modify their instruction, <clears throat> excuse me, given the lack of resources and perhaps, and probably really their lack of expertise in the topic. I mean, we're dealing with so many challenges. So many challenges. Yeah. And I think it's really important. Um, I, I, I hear myself saying this. I feel like anytime I speak to almost anyone on this and we talk about supporting the kids is right. We do have to look at this as two things are true here. Um, there are a lot of challenges. There are also a lot of areas of strength um, and asset that we need to use in order to support those areas of challenge. I think the, the word fair is a really interesting word because as a special education teacher and teacher of multilingual learners, particularly SLIFE, I hear that a lot, right? I hear people saying, well, how can I give this to them? That's not really fair, um, right? Or is it fair if we modify the curriculum? And I always respond that we need to take a moment to pause and ask ourselves why we are here. And if we're here to service students and support them, then we don't, it's not, it's not about whether it's fair or not. It's just about what's really best for that kid. And so what I, it's not about, oh, is it fair if I give the exact same assessment to this, you know, student A versus student B, it's, am I servicing this student mm -hmm. by giving them the exact same assessment student A and student B? And if the answer is no, 
then we need to say, well, then how can I do that? How can I service this student? How can I support them? And I think that's a really important step and sometimes mind shift for a lot of us because we tend to think when we're looking at all these students in the classroom, like this is how I assess or uh, this is what the curriculum is. And um, they either need to be able to do it or they don't. And, And just recognizing that as educators in the classroom and our schools, it's about supporting them and servicing them. Um, And so when we think about um, curriculum and then like taking a step back and then looking at the curriculum and assessment specifically, it's also sometimes a mind shift to think of assessment in a more dynamic way versus just, uh, did they take a test, uh, right? Or or I don't even wanna say worksheet, but uh, more traditional approaches um, and looking at it as more, as a teacher, I'm assessing throughout the, my entire lesson. Um, but it's a matter of what within the lesson, like what kind of those um, low stakes, um, low stress assessments um, am I using in order to then inform my instruction? So if I know that I'm going to put um, accountable talk stems, for example, I'm going to hand them out to all my students. Let's say I agree with, I disagree with, and I'm going to have students hold up one or the other after a question, that's a really important assessment, right? Of who I see holding up what, or maybe hesitating for a moment or not sure what to do. Mm-hmm. That's, a really impo- that's really important information that I'm gathering there as a teacher, especially once I already know who the students are that are slave already. Um, and then watching that progress, right? Maybe a week later, they're shooting up that hand with like, I agree, right? That's really important information. And so I would say that first step of, of assessment and curriculum is, is even just thinking about assessment very differently yeah. than, than we tend to think about it traditionally. Um, and then in the more traditional sense, uh, both, uh, or I would say like traditional schooling, when we think about how do we assess, both the project-based learning is very supportive of students as well as uh, utilizing their first language um, there was a recent book published by Margot Gottlieb. Um, I was on just going, just about to mention her name. I'll wait. Go yes. ahead. Yes. Okay. So she has, right. She recently published a great book um, on multilingual assessment. Uh, it is, I would definitely suggest that to teachers. It is so useful in terms of shifting mindset and thinking about, yeah, right there. There it is. I'm, I'm yes. holding it up for those of you. Listening. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I've got one with lots of post-its all over it. And, um, and I would say that's a really important book in terms of also shifting the mindset from everyone should get this assessment in English versus thinking about um, how to assess in different languages. And especially she has a whole chapter um, that addresses the challenge of, well, what if I don't speak this student's language, yeah. for yep. example? So yeah, it's really great. Um, and I would say that is a really, that is vital for, for our life is really, you know, all our multilingual learners, but I would say particularly our students who are life and those who maybe don't have print awareness yet uh, in, in their home preferred languages, um, utilizing that as well as uh, pictures, video, just thinking about assessment in a very different way. And also, like, what am I assessing, which Margot Gottlieb got, gets into, you know, in her book, like, what is the point of my assessment, mm-hmm. right? So if, if the goal is X, am I really doing that through this assessment? And can I do it a little differently to, to see if the student understood that? Um, and, and, and then using all of that different information or, or ways of getting at that information to then modify instruction to support them. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there. And I have to kind of, <laughs> I'm going to have to be careful about what I bring up because I'll talk forever and we'll go off the rails here. But um, 
Project-based learning, you mentioned, that's going to be my next question. I'll tease that because we're going to get into that in a minute. I think that's really important. We've talked about that before. Um, the idea of the mindset with assessment, and I would, for me, like as a teacher, and I, I taught high school for a long time, and I can remember the exact moment when it wasn't assessment necessarily, but it was it was homework, right, which is a type of assessment. And I remember being at the end, I totally admit it, maybe it's third, fourth year of teaching, being at the end of class, and I the bell was about to ring and I was teaching high school Spanish. And I said, Oh man, what am I going to give these students for homework? I forgot about homework. Um, and the bell rang and they left and I had a minute to reflect. And I said, why am I like, what am I doing? I'm just, I'm doing it because I'm supposed to do it. There's no reason for it. It's just, this is what I have to do. And I think assessment is the same way. And I mentioned that because I'm not the only one, right. Who had that kind of epiphany. And I think there's many, and it changed me. It really did as, as an educator. I was still working in the confines of a system that I needed to, you know, do certain things, but I changed it and adapted the way that I needed to. I think there's many, many educators who probably through no fault of their own, either never have that epiphany or have it, and then they can't do anything about it because they're working in systems that won't change, which leads me to Margo's book. We talked to her on the podcast. Um, I don't know. It was, it was maybe a couple of months ago. So you can find it. A shameless plug. It's a two-part episode. She's great. What I love about her is she's, she's just brave and relentless, um, but also extremely realistic. The teacher in me read the book and was like, I can probably do this, you know, whereas a lot of these books mean very well, but they're very kind of high fluent research based. And there's that whole, you know, research versus practice and the whole like war going on. Well, this is, I'm a teacher, like, and you're a researcher and you don't know, and I'm a researcher and you're a teacher. It, it, it's a problem. And I think Margot Gottlieb does a great job of bridging that gap, which is so important. And everything that you're talking about now, I think also does a good job of bridging that gap because you're talking about, we started with federal policies. Now we're talking about what teachers can do. We're talking about the challenges. Um, and so I just think that's great. And I guess that all in some ways can I'm gonna try to transition into, into the project-based learning as, and feel free to like react to everything else I've just said, but you know, <laughs> You've pointed to project-based learning, which is also something I'm really passionate about and excited about as um, a, a potentially useful strategy to work with life students. We had a woman named Donna Neary, who, if she's listening, shout out to Donna. She's great. She was um, working in a school district, working with almost all life students in a, a class that was designed to help them graduate on time because they were um, in danger of aging out. And she leveraged project-based learning and a lot of stuff like you talked about earlier with the community um, to help these students not only graduate, but become uh, members of a community and be accepted by people in the community who otherwise, if they hadn't met them, frankly, may not have accepted them for a wide variety of reasons. I won't get into all of that, but that episode is like phenomenal. She tells a story about one of these students working with somebody who is a, a, a in the Department of Public Works and they were building something together and they just immediate like connection and relationship happened that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So anyway, all that is to say that project-based learning may have some potential here. So talk to me about that. What are you seeing there? Yeah, I'm going to go back a little bit, just a second <laughs> from what you just said. Go for um, it, yeah. First of all, yeah, on Margot Gottlieb's book, uh, I would agree. I think that um, it, I, also one of the topics I, I hit on a lot when I talk to people it, is the idea that even if the research in life is a smaller field, we have to start bridging the the great divide between the research and the researchers and what we're finding, and then what is happening in classrooms, right? It's very nice to tell me that um, 
I, the research shows me X, Y, Z, you know, the other, whatever, this, that, and the other. Uh, but if I can't do that within the confines, the, the confines of the system in which I am in, mm -hmm. then I need something much more practical, um, in order to support these kids, because, um, it's nice to hold that ideal in our heads, but if I am in a system that is telling me I have to do this, you know, then I may want to get to that ideal, but I have to have other ways to, in order to support these kids that go beyond that. And also educational research obviously is so important. Um, and at the same time, very connected to what I said before, it's also a snapshot, right? right. Like it's, it, it's very much a snapshot. Um, and, and I, think even recognize that even with an assessment, like that assessment on that one day, no matter what the assessment is, is a snapshot of that student or those students in that one particular time with that one particular assessment. Mm -hmm. And then it's more of taking a look at um, more of the big picture. Uh, and I think that that connects a lot to project-based learning because project-based lear based learning is much more of a process. And so I'm looking at not just that again, one snapshot test, which also is important, right? Like when we think about English proficiency tests, for example, right? So people will ask, well, the student scored, right? The student is a one, a two, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, okay, let's look at this in a more dynamic way versus just they are this level. They took this one test on this one day and this is where they are on that one test on that mm -hmm. one day versus project-based learning, which tends to have more um, of a process to it. Um, and so it allows for in general, more dynamic approach to assessment and to how students are doing. And I think there's room for both. I think we need both within our educational system. Um, but I would say that what is even particularly supportive of SLIFE within project-based learning is the fact that so many of our SLIFE come from collectivist cultures. Uh, versus United States more individualistic culture, which we tend to be like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, <laughs> and like, you can do it, you know. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there are so many resources to uh, point to why that is uh, problematic um, and challenging. Um, but because our students really do often come from these more collectivist cultures and, and working together and thinking more in communal terms, than individualistic terms. The idea of project-based learning uh, that kind of goes beyond you as an individual and just you sitting in a classroom uh, is much more supportive of even their generally their lived experiences and, and what they're used to doing. And I will add that particularly project-based learning, especially with in-group settings, um, is right even more supportive because you are creating for them a stronger connection to the cultures they come from uh, and and what they're used to experiencing uh, themselves before entering our classrooms. Um, and so I, I think there's there's that aspect of it of the collective collectivist culture uh, Which, aspect. Yeah, for go ahead. two seconds, could just jump yeah. in because I think it's important, and maybe you're going to get to it. But like that's also really useful for the student who's lived here their entire life, right? Yeah. Like seeing yeah. a different perspective and understanding not only that culture but that collective communal. Uh, learning piece, right? I mean, that's that's good. It's like people we say good instruction for multiple learners, good instruction for everybody. We say it all the time, but that's a great example. Yeah, and and I think that's also really important, right? Is like any any student or anyone who even right goes through the educational system here, uh, having that mindset uh, of the community and and creating um, 
you know, again, this project-based structure or group work or whatever it is to be able to think about the community and how you as an individual relate uh, and are part of that community, uh, yes, is is really important um, and honestly vital for, for us as a world yeah. um, in thinking about skills and thinking about uh, furthering what needs to happen and for our for our world in general. Um, and I think the other point that's also really important is that project-based learning and group work uh, in general, even I would say, even if it's just working on a worksheet as a group, really tends to play into students' lived experiences and assets um, and uh, strengths that they're coming in with. Um, so again, whether that SLIFE student has developing literacy and so they are stronger in their oral development, even in their preferred language versus in English, that again, more collectivist group, communal work, project-based learning work can really help play on that strength, right? And that's just even one example. Um, and even to give you kind of an example of what I used to do, uh, I was a, an ELA uh teacher, high school teacher for a while. And when we would teach Romeo and Juliet, for example, to our multilingual students in SLIFE, uh, we really use the play uh, as a driving force to explore gender norms and roles within various cultures. Uh, we used it to explore the Me Too movement. We used it to address uh, media literacy um, and what we see in the media, particularly around that topic. Um, and there are just really powerful tools that students can use um, that connect to their lives and connect to the community and allow them to view themselves in the community um, at large and, and make it really relevant to their lives that can assess their speaking, reading, writing, listening skills within English, um, as well as in their preferred language. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of this is just like sort of stepping out of the box and just learning to do things differently. It's change management. But when you see it happen and when you see it work, or hopefully at times when you hear about it through you know, media outlets like this one, um, it, it can change you, you know, and, 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 and we try different things and you see kind of the, really the whole student approach um, a lot more than you do in kind of the traditional, for lack of a better term, setting. Okay. We've covered a lot of ground uh, in the last half an hour or so. Um, I, I would like to be able to, I don't ever look at the highest aspirations podcast as, as like, it's not PD, it's meant to inspire you. And then you can take the next step. Hopefully people get something from this and they look and they think about what they're going to do next. But I'd love to kind of conclude here before we learn a little bit more about the work that you're doing um, with what would you say are, are three, four, five key elements needed right now for effective life support? And more importantly, how can we, you and I, people listening, go about advocating for them? Sure. Um, I want to start by saying that sometimes I feel, I know I used to feel this way as a teacher. I would listen to something or read a book and think, oh, I really need to start doing all of that right now. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. like I need to identify these kids. I need to switch to project-based learning. Like I need to do all the things. Um, and so I think it's always important for teachers to recognize that like, especially again, within the pandemic, many teachers are feeling, um, if not most, right, this intense pressure and burnout and just exhaustion is that we can be really inspired and also really want to change. And also it's okay, right? Like to take one small takeaway and say, that's this one little thing I'm going to do, right? Like 
even say like just this one month I'm going to do instead of this one worksheet, I'm going to have them work on this one thing instead that's more group work or project based. So I definitely uh, believe that uh, or would stress that I hope a takeaway that people come away with before getting into kind of those few key elements is um, not to rush to do everything at once. Uh, because that's not the point. That's not how we are going to be most supportive because we, that's, that is how we burn out. Um, yeah. um, and it can feel, it can make you really feel just deflated, uh, you know, cause then you're like, Oh, but I want to do all this stuff and I don't know how, and then I don't have these resources, you know, and it's more about what is that one tiny little thing that could make a huge difference, um, for these kids. Uh, and so I would say kind of that first point, that first key difference, that key element, um, is, is first really understanding their culture, just like where they come from, right? Like, it's not just about what language they speak. It is about, you know, what what is their culture um, and how can I use that in my classroom? Because we can and should be utilizing that in our classroom, whether that's through the books we read uh, or again, that idea of collectivist versus individualistic culture. It's just thinking about um, learning about a student's background um, and culture and their lived experiences um, is huge, right? If I know that this kid spent a lot of their time, um, you know, uh, in an agricultural setting, for example, before being here, I can really use a lot of that, um, a lot of that knowledge, a lot of that uh, lived experience to support them in the classroom. And I can use that for them to make connections to them, whatever we're doing. Uh, so I would say that's kind of key piece number one is just even being curious about our students from the get go. Um, the next piece, which is definitely more of a challenging piece, but something we really need to, uh, be thinking about more is how we're going to support them in the foundational literacy and numeracy skills. Um, I get that question a lot. Like I know, let's say they need all the support and I don't really know how. And so I would say the first is kind of key element is trying to get a sense of where they are in, in the literacy and numeracy skills. Um, and then supporting that, whether that is integrated into the core setting, if possible, whether that's through an intervention model, if possible. Uh, but again, one kind of like what's one little small shift that we can do in order to support that. Can I point out that this word, the S at the end is makes it plural in English, for example, what's that mm -hmm. one little thing I can do. Um, and then I would say that that kind of we talked about before the idea of progress monitoring um, I would say is another key element. And again, that doesn't mean formal, I'm going to sit down and assess all these different, right? Like all these phonics levels, it's, it could be that, but it's not really what I mean. It's, I really mean the idea of just having a sense of where your student is. Um, and as much as possible, what artifacts can you gather so that you can show the student the progress they're making? Because we know how motivating that is for students. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be this huge portfolio that you've created. It can really just be saying to a student, I noticed last week you were unsure of what to do with the accountable talk. And I noticed that this week you were ready to shoot your hand up and tell me that you agreed to that student. That is huge, right? right and getting right. like really excited and showing the student just like the noticing of the progress they're making in both could be formal, but even in more informal ways. Um, and I would say that those are really major elements that both connect you to the student as well as help them move forward academically um, and support them emotionally in the classroom. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning those. I think those are things that, like you mentioned, like you can do kind of 
various levels of them. You can just dip your feet in and it's still going to make a difference. You can go all the way by creating a whole digital portfolio, which many people have already done, or you can just make sure that you're um, giving students the encouragement that they really need um, over time when they are accomplishing something that has to do with their own goals or the goals that we've set for them. Okay, great. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, so you, you are doing really incredible work here. You're on your way, hopefully, to solving some of these uh, some of these big problems and big challenges that we can't really solve right now and we can't necessarily help people out with too much, although hopefully we've given some good information. So I'd love for you to tell us um, more about the work you're doing and how people can learn more about it. Sure, thank you. Uh, so we at Inlier Learning are really starting with that kind of assessment data piece. Um, and we are in the process of creating tools in order to determine whether or not a student is safe with language access, the, the tool itself with language accessibilities, um, both for languages that have uh, written forms as well as languages that don't have written forms. So we are uh, moving ahead with just kind of starting there, um, be recognizing that we both need support in classroom and we need support at the data level and how they are very much integrated and um, and connected to each other. Um, and that's that's really the work that we're that we're pushing forward right now, uh, as well as looking at how that then does connect to curriculum, for example, um, and supporting both in terms of tech tools as well as like low tech and and professional development and just supporting um, districts as a whole in that way. Um, and you can find us on our website. We're inlayerlearning.com. You can sign up for a newsletter. Uh, we've started putting out more blog posts with free resources for, for teachers to use. We've gotten so many messages just asking like, well, where do I find this? Or where do I find that? So just trying to build more of an arsenal for teachers um, of resources that can be readily available and printed and used. Um, and you can also find us on Twitter uh, at Inlayer Learning or at Orly Clapholtz. We talk a lot about life. <laughs> um, so those are all places uh, that you can find us. Great. That's awesome. And we'll link to all of those so folks can find um, uh, more about the great resources that you're putting out. And I do, I agree with you. It's so important to put out resources that are actionable and usable and free um, to yeah. people. It's hugely <laughs> important. Something that yeah. I take a lot of pride in doing as well. But you all, you know, to have it specifically related to life students, I think is just so crucially important right now. Thank you. Okay. Last question that I, I'm going to ask you and I ask everybody this question um, because it's fun. Um, is there a book or a film or any other resource that's had an important influence to you either personally, professionally, or both um, that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, there are two that come to mind. Uh, the first is Being Mortal, both books. The first is Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which um, talks about both the limitations and, and um, the complexities in medicine, um, particularly related to elderly patients and death. And the second is The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist by Tucker Carrington and Radley Balco, which highlights uh, the deep systemic racist, racism in um, our criminal justice system. And they both have had uh, major influence on my personal and professional life because they're both books I go back to a lot um, because they really show um, the importance of questioning systems and how sometimes we get really entrenched within a system and it's just, we follow along and how important it is to question systems both in our professional lives and personal lives and not almost taking a back seat and just letting ourselves get uh, swept with the tide of whatever's happening. Um, 
and they're just, yeah, books I always go back to uh, that allow for that larger thinking as well as kind of more uh, detailed thinking um, in terms of both systemic racism and, and, and how we live life and living life to the fullest and, and what does that mean uh, that's pointed out by Atul Gawande. Um, and, and so I would say that those are two that continue to have impact on my life, both personally and professionally. That's great. I love it when they can do both. And you made the connection there. I immediately wrote down and, and become becoming entrenched in systems and how to figure that out. Um, and those are those are two books that we haven't heard yet. So that's great. So I'll add those to the list um, and link to them as well. And there are two more books that I get to add to my own collection, which is another reason why I selfishly ask this question every episode <laughs> that we have. Um, well, Orly Klepos, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and you giving us a taste of that work and also giving us some recommendations about what we can do um, in a place right now where we admittedly don't have everything we need, but um, it's good to know that folks like you are helping to build the systems that we need to support these students. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast speaking to you about it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.